Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Good morning, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Lumi Sawaki, who just gave an excellent presentation on neuromodulation in uh, severely injured patients. And um, I wanted to allow you to introduce yourself a little bit. So I am Lumi Sawaki. Um, I'm originally from Brazil. I have uh, a strong uh, background also in uh, Japanese background because my parents are from Japan. I finished my uh, residence in Brazil and I decided to go um, to see if we could offer something better for our patients, especially spinal cord injury at that time when I finished residency. And then I ended up going to for a PhD and I was invited to come to National Institute of Health and at that time I changed my career path to a clinical researcher. It was never in my uh, structure planning, but um, I, it worked for the best. So if you don't mind me asking, how did your interest in neuromodulation itself kind of come about? So I went during my PhD in Japan in, you know, back in 1994, um, I was introduced to transcranial magnetic stimulation. So that was my entry in understanding neuromodulation. At that time, we only had single pulse uh, stimulator, but later on, you know, I, I learned to do RTMS, especially at NIH. And so then from, from there, because of the population that I'm very passionate about, the severe uh, stroke and severe spinal cord injury, um, I got very interested in transcranial direct current stimulation because of the adverse events there, much less with my population. Okay, so in today's Grand Rounds presentation, you, um, you obviously neuromodulation is just a big, you know, um, kind of catch-all term. Absolutely. Um, but you decided to focus on peripheral nerve stimulation and transcranial direct current stimulation, is yes. that correct? So why those two? Well, this is was uh, for the purpose of the presentation today. Okay. In my program, we do, you know, everything. Not everything, but we do brain-computer interface. We also do use medications as a neuromodulation. Okay. Um, I have a graduate student actually doing mindfulness. That it is part of a kind of an intrinsic way of neuromodulating. Um, she's actually trying to modulate attention in stroke patients. So all kinds of, like I said, the term neuromodulation is becoming very uh, u utilized and I think at some point we may need to define it a little bit better. Okay. Uh, but everything that we can actually modulate ourselves or the patients becomes, so it's, it's a matter of saying it's intrinsic or extrinsic m modulation. Okay. Right? So if I can put you on the spot then, sure. um, let's try to redefine it. In your opinion, being that you're one of the leading experts in this field, what is neuromodulation to you? For me specifically, are, um, so I would say 
anything that it is, is extrinsic um, and primarily I would say electrical uh, neuromodulation uh, or magnetic stimulation. Okay. And electrical or magnetic kind of taking advantage of the interplay between magnetism and electricity. That's correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so one of the uh, one of the topics that you were mentioning a little bit earlier was um, kind of pharmacology as part of neuromodulation. And in today's presentation, you mentioned how certain medications can inhibit or augment what you're trying to do with, with the neuromodulation. Could you go into that a little bit more? So that's a very, very extensive chapter. Okay. Uh, I think I would need at least three hours to talk about it. Okay. But for example, uh, we have some, like I, I mentioned that some people will not respond to brain stimulation, but if you give antidepressants, they will respond. Uh, even the people that were, um, for example, there are several um, neuromodulation that you can actually inhibit areas that are not beneficial to the patient. Uh, if you give some kind of stimulants, like amphetamines or antidepressants, the stimulation that was supposed to be inhibitory can also become uh, excitatory. So it's a very complex area. Um, but also, if the patient or the subject is taking already some kind of medication, that can actually impact the outcome of neuromodulation. So I don't think we know everything about it. Um, and if you think, um, you know, I just said that neuromodulation for me is either transcranial magnetic stimulation or direct current stimulation. Okay. But medication is also a, a form of neuromodulation right if you think about adhd for example you're neuromodulating with chemicals right right so it's a very complex question um, i think at some point somebody will need to um, evaluate the impact of all common use medications in neuro rehab and see how it actually impacts neuromodulation, the effects of neuromodulation. Okay, um, because we have all kinds of listeners um, to the podcast, uh, whether medically trained or non-medically trained, I like to kind of try to break things down a little bit. So is it safe to say that neuromodulation is kind of anything that you can do, whether it's pharmacology, you know, magnetism, electricity, even therapy, where you're trying to take advantage of you know, that term that we use all the time within rehab medicine, neuroplasticity. Yes, I would agree with that. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, so, currently, which direction do you feel the field is going in? Do you think that this will someday have direct clinical application? I believe so. I mean, for example, the RTMS of the repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation is already approved by FDA for depression. Okay. Right? So what we're missing here in neuro rehabilitation is to be able to do conduct large multicenter trials and and with that go to the FDA to get approval for clinical application. So I think we are moving towards that. But also I think in terms of neuromodulation in general, we need to also think about precision neuromodulation. Um, so better understand, again, the same thing, understand the, the subject, first of all, and see why somebody would respond to one neuromodulation better than the other. So the analogy that many times I use, for example, if you have an infection 
and you might give some antibiotics at the beginning but you, you so let me take a little bit a little more specific example so somebody comes to you with urinary tract infection okay. you know um, so you may start with antibiotics but you collect the urine just run a culture to see what kind of medication will respond the best for that kind of patient and that kind of infection, right? Right, you do sensitivity testing, right, absolutely. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So this is the culture that we do. So we have to do something very similar in terms of neuromodulation and not, you know, everything everything will fit to everybody. Okay. I don't think that's the case. Okay. Um, and I'm very, very um, excited to move towards what we call precision neuromodulation. So f- figuring out who's a responder and who's yes. not a responder. That was one of the things that you were mentioning during during your um, during your didactic mm-hmm. presentation. Um, and this may be, you know, to, I may be jumping the gun here a little bit, but do you think that we've kind of shed a little bit of light on figuring out who is a responder, who's not a responder, or is that an active area of research right now that we really need to... Yes, it's an active field that I think a lot of people in our field needs to put a lot of effort on it. And I, I, I think not only neurorehabilitation, but neurology, um, that also, uh, they are putting a lot of effort in better understanding neuromodulation. So I think it re- rehabilitation, I mean, I'm being trained by physical medicine and rehabilitation. I'd love to have more PM&R departments joining our efforts to better understand and move towards a precision neuromodulation. Okay, you mentioned genetic factors mm-hmm. potentially being some of those underlying, you know, reasons why somebody would respond mm-hmm. and not respond. Mm-hmm. Um, is that similar to like somebody's genetic predisposition to, you know? diabetes or genetic predisposition to heart disease or so on and so forth? So um, I can't say that it is that clear at this point um, because, you know, diabetes has been studied for centuries probably now, Uh, but neuromodulation, I think it's picking up since the early 2000s, so we're really, really in initial phases to better understand but at some point, I, I hope that we get to that point and say this person may a predictive um, values just to to say okay, this person probably will uh, respond better to one kind of the other or the combination, or even the timing. You know, according to where they are, if they are just after an injury, what kind of neuromodulation will be the best compared to later you know a year later I believe that will be different okay shifting gears a little bit um, since you work with patients with all kinds of severe neurological insults Mm -hmm. have you seen um, in particular transcranial direct current stimulation seem to yield you know, I guess, uh, greater outcomes, greater measurable outcomes in more of a, you know, cranial or like, like post-stroke population versus like, um, spinal cord injury or, or is that, is it really too early to, to I don't know if we can ever, uh, compare this to, because the conditions are so different. Uh, if you think a stroke is heterogeneous, uh, you can have large lesions, different areas, you know, it can be multiple uh, sites of s- small strokes, 
one single large stroke. And if you're talking about spinal cord injury, we have to understand how the levels of injury affects. Uh, we have asymmetry, left and right. Um, so I don't think it's comparable. Okay. And I don't think it will ever be. Because it's like comparing Parkinson and stroke, you okay. know, or amputee with stroke. I think to me, they're very different okay condition the etiology is so different that you yes. can't really okay that makes sense um so in in an ideal world you know flash forward a hundred years mm-hmm. um how would you envision um this these techniques being applied um kind of on an outpatient basis or similar to the way that we do you know um, some of our advanced physical therapy occupational therapy speech and language pathology therapies um, how would you envision patients coming in and receiving these treatments? So, the, so I think we have to go again to the concept of neuroplasticity, right? So what we're doing right now is doing your brain stimulation, spinal stimulation, you know, peripheral nerve stimulation. We do 10, 15, six weeks intervention and we then send them home. But if we then don't use they're going to lose it, okay. right? So unless we get to the, to the level of improvement that they go home, they're able to do their activities of daily living. That is the key. So if we can improve enough for them to use everything independently or you know, almost independently, then we reached our goal. But if not, I do believe that we have to start thinking about some kind of portable and safe way for them to do the stimulation, um, you know, having bouts. Um, and in 100 years, I would love for them to be able to do this at home safely. We're okay. not there yet by all means, and I don't want anybody to be, you know, trying this at home today because we don't know everything. We don't know all the risks, but uh, that it, they could do these bouts at home with some kind of remote, um, uh, somebody monitoring it safely. Okay. I mean, I saw uh, very recently a smart house that for us now it looks like you know impossible, but it's a house that you can mon. They have um, sensors on the floor, so if the person doesn't step on that like for a whole day. So somebody knows that this person is not walking, or if there is a pressure in one spot, they know that this person fell, fall, fell. Okay. And so that's the kind of things that I would like to see that there is an interaction, interactive monitoring way that we don't need necessarily to go there, but we can still see and monitor the safety and and maybe say it's time for you to do your neuromodulation today or even you know have some kind of uh, alerts in your cell phone and say uh, you have not done this maybe you have to do brain stimulation together with again I have to reinforce that any kind of neuromodulation if it's not paired with some kind of activity is not going to work okay um, does doc- it make sense? It, it does, it does. Um, and it's a very interesting topic just because, I mean, even for, again, somebody who's not medically trained, 
um, it's it's almost kind of sci-fi-ish. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of frontier of of what we under, of our understanding of physics, of our understanding of you know biomedical engineering to a, to a degree, and medicine itself just kind of all coming together with the ultimate intent of improving someone's function, of improving someone's capabilities of taking care of themselves, of living an independent life. So being a rehab physician in training, it's it's very interesting to me. So I, if I can add to it then, futuristically, I would love to see someday that we don't need all these devices, that we can actually rewire the central nervous system either with some kind of you know, intervention, and I think there are some studies moving towards that. Um, I don't want to say specifically, um, but if we can get to the point that we don't need neuromodulation, we can rewire the brain, that will be awesome. Right, and at the very least, I mean, this research is is shedding light on how these neurons interplay, on how these neurons adapt and change and what neuroplasticity actually means at least that's the understanding that I'm gaining from it yeah it is it is impressive to, throughout my career that how much the word neuroplasticity we we see this in commercials now right and it makes me happy every time I hear it because we don't need to explain that having said that I still see uh, therapists physicians saying that after a certain number of time they're not going to improve and this is, a, to me, is a very um, difficult uh, statement because if you say to somebody you're not going to improve, they're not going. The patient's not going to try. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. And we have historically, as physicians, as a group, you know, sometimes it's part of the job. We have to give you know bad, you know, prognostic indicators, but to clear cut black and white say that someone's not going to improve as you're saying is a very difficult statement to share with the patient or patient's family and how many times we i don't know you but i have heard so many times patients come and say they said i'm not going to walk can you see me now you know i'm walking i'm not perfect but i'm walking so we don't know everything and i think more so saying six months three months i mean it's a it's 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 to me, it's a very uh, important um, thing to say to anybody. Uh, we don't hold it true for everything. Okay. So what would be the best, again, putting you on the spot, best kind of blanket statement you would say to a patient who's asking, you know, hey, am I going to walk again? Or a family member who's saying, is, is my family member going to be able to get up again from bed? So the, what I tell, tell the people that come to our research clinic um, is everybody will improve. It, it requires that you invest. If you don't do anything, you rely only on me, you are not going to improve. You might improve a little bit, but you are going to decline. So this is a teamwork. You need to do your part, I will do my part. Um, and the degree of improvement is different from person to person. Like you have different, you know, personality, you have a different, uh, you know, eye, color of your eyes. People are different. So I don't usually generalize and say you're not going to walk you're not, or you're going to walk. 
you know I would like at least to give a chance to them um, it, and I think it's more because I I see people like 20 years after stroke for example and the fact that we can make changes that is very promising but I can't say that everybody after 20 years will improve right, right. but I don't know to say okay you are going to walk or you are going to move you're going to move your hand um, but it's a partnership it's always a teamwork they have the, the, the people that come to our clinic needs to work with us um, it's not us doing everything for them it's for us to teach how to do things so it's part of the tough love you were talking about in your absolutely. presentation absolutely <laughs> when they are struggling is when I when I'm struggling uh, you know because they're not seeing me but um, if they're in a machine and the machine is doing everything I am not happy because I'm, we are not doing any favor to them. Okay. Dr. Sawaki, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share before we end this session? Thank you so much. It was, it was very, um, yeah, I mean, it was very exciting. It's been an honor. It's been very educating. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.